Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode five of the Successful Fashion Designer podcast, and today I'm chatting with Danielle Mader, who's had a 10-year career as a professional fashion illustrator. She's done live runway sketching at Fashion Weeks Worldwide and has a book called Draw Fashion Now. In this interview, Danielle shares how she broke past her fears of approaching people at events, how improving her appearance increased her success, and how she estimates and prices her freelance work to make sure she doesn't leave any money on the table. Before we jump into the interview, I want to remind you of the free templates, tutorials, and resources I've created to help designers like you get ahead in fashion. You can find all of them on the Successful Fashion Designer Network at sfdnetwork.com slash free. To access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com slash five. Now on to the interview with Danielle. Welcome, Danielle, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. And I would love to start out with just a quick introduction from you, who you are and what you do for those listeners who are not familiar with you and your work. Uh, my name is Danielle Mader, and I am a fashion artist and a writer. Uh, I'm location independent, so I divide my time usually between my fav- four favorite cities, London, New York, Paris, and my hometown, Toronto. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, I have a column with a national newspaper in Canada called The Globe and Mail. I have a book that was published last August uh, called Draw Fashion Now, where I give all my tips and tricks on how to be me. And... Uh, yeah, these are, these are the main things I do. I also am a commercial illustrator with, with a variety of commercial clients, um, and all specializing in clothing, fashion figures, attitude. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to just dive in. I have, I've have so many notes and questions I want to ask you. So I hope we can get through all of this. I'm just going to kind of start from what, what I found as kind of your beginning. And one of the things you said is when you got started, you kind of, you got started pretty young and you, um, didn't really take the full-time job route. Um, and, and some of the things I've read that you've said about doing this is getting started sooner than later it's easier to start a career right out of school a freelance career right out of school when you're not used to having stable income and nice things it's harder to leave a full-time job in your 30s and start all over with nothing and this was such an interesting perspective to me um you know obviously some of the listeners out there will be in their early 20s and can be in this position um first those of us who are a little bit older than that that's uh, not something that's necessarily achievable, but I love the overarching takeaway, which is just start doing something and do it now. Um, and one of my mentors says something to the extent of imagine where you'd be now if you'd started a year ago. So you had this concept when you were young and you just started and you just did it. And so I'm curious, how has this, this approach of getting started sooner than later helped you during various stages of your career? Um, 
In, in a lot of ways, I was just very fortunate that my parents were very supportive of me being a bohemian at all. Uh, I was homeschooled as a small child, which means that I'm really used to being self-directed. And I frankly, when I was in employment situations, I self like I just didn't thrive in them. I, I self-sabotaged. I was always getting, you know, even though I was like a competent person, I was always getting laid off and like I didn't really I wasn't really good at taking direction or working on other people's projects. <laughs> so I feel like I just kind of ended up being self-employed by by default, just by my own sort of constitution, which is, I, I, I don't know whether to blame nurture or nature for that. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just not an ideal employee. So I really ended up being a freelancer kind of just, it just, I feel like it just happened to me. It wasn't like I had a particular insight on it. It was like, oh, I have to get started as soon as possible. Mm. It was just like, it was just like, well, I certainly am not doing well, like working as a production assistant or a design assistant or <laughs> even like, or even that great, like working in a shop, you know, selling things to people. I was like, but it seemed like when people hired me to do a drawing for them or something like that, like I was my my clients were much happier with me than my bosses were basically <laughs> so so yeah that was that was how that happened um i i was very fortunate that that's the way it happened i also was very lucky that at t that time in my life uh i was i was with a partner who was a little bit older than me and he was a total workaholic and he was a huge believer in big, like having a studio set up before you even set up our, your apartment. So we were living in, essentially we were living in like a work studio that had like a makeshift bedroom and not the other way around. <laughs> um, so as soon as I was like, you know, while I was already in school, I already had like a functional working studio and I was really being indoctrinated by my romantic partner at the time in the value of having great tools, good materials, you know, making sure you have an organized and like well-equipped studio and just working all the time. You know, I, w I would have been happy to just be his girlfriend, but he was like, I'm busy. He was in, working in this as a special effects guy in the film industry industry. He was like, I'm busy. You have to have your own thing. So I just worked a lot. Um, so that was another very fortunate thing that happened to me when I was young. And, and yeah, for those reasons, like I, I was drawn to self-employment and it was a lucky thing, even though I, the first seven years I was living hand to mouth, the first four or five years I was living on like a thousand dollars a month. Uh, it was like pretty lean times, but I had never had more than that. So I was just, it was just like, nothing was changing in my life. I didn't have to scale back or anything. It was <laughs> like, I was just, I, I had just always lived that way. I had, you know, I was used to walking across town instead of taking the bus to save three hours, $3. Like that was yeah. just like, that was just normal to me. Like, so it wasn't, I didn't. I didn't have the sense of like, oh, I'm making sacrifices. I was just, I was all, it, it, it didn't feel like I was even particularly like deprived or anything. The advantage of that is like, you know, once my career started to pick up around year eight, 
and I'm in year 10 now. So this hasn't even been that long. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had, I had a significant amount of experience and, and even just making a little bit more money, like make $2,000 a month instead of $1,000 a month felt like an incredible abundance. Like, I was just like, oh my goodness, I am bawling now. You just doubled I, your salary. Yeah, I have like, yeah, to 24 grand a year. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I have more than I need all of a sudden for the first time in my life. Uh, and that was, that was, that was just wild. I was just like, oh, this is so great. <laughs> so what and, happened like two years ago that you saw that big shift in, you know, eight years of the stable, but but what some may consider, and depends on where you live, um, but what some may consider like hand to mouth, as you said, mm-hmm. versus how you just doubled two years ago. How did that, how did that shift happen? Yeah. So I think there's a, like a number of factors that went into that. One thing was I went, I had gone to London and I was living in London, which was even much more difficult than living in Toronto because it's a, twi- about twice as expensive to live there. Mm-hmm. And and so I was like, once again, I was like, I was struggling financially, but worse than I was used to. So I was feeling kind of deprived in London. Uh, but also in London, people just talk about aesthetics all the time in the way that they don't in Toronto. In Toronto, I don't remember anybody ever talking about taste. Like, what is good taste? What is bad taste? Like, you know, why is something, you know, why does something have a better aesthetic than another thing? Um, And when I was in London, it seemed like everybody I knew was having these conversations all the time. Like, even if somebody hadn't gone to university for art, and a lot of people there had, the art education in their public and high schools is, like, so extensive, and it's so built into the culture, and this had been happening for a long time, but I think it was like um, William Morris and uh, Queen Victoria or something. Like they had, they had like instituted this system where they're like, you know, we want to make sure that art education is provided for all people, including ordinary people. And this is the reason why, you know, London had the youth quake in the 60s. All of these people who had been, you know, brought up all these, it was like all these working class people had been brought up with an aesthetic education. And this is what happened when they came of age. Like all of a sudden you had like a really like revolutionary, like an aesthetic revolution that happened in a city in London. So when I was there, like I got to experience that part of the culture firsthand and it just it just upped my aesthetic game. Like I can't even like the stuff that was before London, it looks like something that you would see, you know, in a fashion school. It's like a fashion school illustration aesthetic. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not really aware of the business that I'm in, which is the aesthetic business. Um, after London, there's like, there's an aesthetic sophistication to the illustrations that is just like, to me, it was like utterly transformed. I knew that I had, I had developed a mature style. That was one thing. Wow. That's phenomenal. I mean, you, how long were you there? Two years? Two years. Yeah. And even after an eight year career doing this, two years spent really marinating yourself in this culture was a profound transformation transformation in your art and led to led to what more more possibilities better gigs I mean that's so um, fascinating to me that was one thing okay. okay and then the other aspect was 
I had always kind of treated myself. I'm like, I was like, I'm like a photographer. I'm behind the scenes. I'm an observer of the situation. Like I, I just, and, and I kind of dressed that way as well. Like, so I would wear jeans and plaid shirts and like, you know, parkas and, 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 uh, Dr. Martin's boots. And I just sort of didn't really ha- I didn't really dress like a fashion illustrator. And there was two reasons for that. One of them was financial. I simply couldn't afford the clothes that I actually wanted. Mm-hmm. So I told myself I didn't want them. And the other was confidence because if you are going to start dressing like you're hot, you have to kind of believe that you're hot <laughs> in the first place. So there's like, there was these two kind of, there's these things that were holding me back and and I sort of had to get over my my insecurity in that regard. I had a realization at one point that, and I think it sort of happened in New York because New York is where a lot of people like have a lot of my friends there have this life is performance kind of um, thing that they do, and so some of that was rubbing off on me. And I just sort of realized, like, oh, oh no, wait, I remember what it was. I, I had gotten this dream gig where I was sketching on the iPad at all of these fancy shows in New York. And one of the shows was uh, the Oscar de la Renta show, which it was the one where Galliano was the intern for that in 2013. And so it was like a very newsworthy show. And everybody who was anybody had showed up to that show, which was in the Oscar de la Renta showroom. And I went there and it was the last day that I was in New York. So I'd like used up all my good clothes. Like they were all dirty. So I was like <laughs> wearing some schlubby outfit. And when I was in that environment, the PR people placed me behind a pillar so I wouldn't be visible to the photographers. Mm. And I realized in that moment that I was, I was supposed to be part of the picture. I was, I was cropping myself out of the picture. By and how you had presented yourself. Right. I didn't, I hadn't given myself the chance to be part of the picture. And I realized like, wait, wait a minute. I'm in showbiz. I'm in showbiz. And it's not enough for me to do great fashion illustrations. I realized like I have to look like a fashion illustrator as well. So like, I really had to like get over myself and had to like, think of how am I going to visually present myself? Like I had to come up with a plan for that and think my way through that. I kind of took a page from Madonna. So when Madonna blew up in her thirties, she became like a pop idol in her thirties. She blew up when she did the blonde ambition tour and she adopted the Marilyn Monroe image. So she took an already iconic image and used it to propel herself to superstardom. So you can take you can take an already iconic image that has a lot of cultural momentum behind it already and adapt it. So I decided to do that with the Holly Golightly image, and I and it kind of gave me a framework that I could style myself and dress myself with. And it, invent, it involved a lot of investment. I started spending a lot more money on clothes, and I was spending a lot of money on my hair. And and it, I honestly, I almost feel like the hair was the thing, because after I after I changed my hair, that was when I started to notice that my rates started to tick up, and I got the book deal shortly after that. 
And I was wow. like, oh, okay, so this is really, I mean, duh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's that saying, it goes back to that saying, I don't know if you ever heard it, but it's like, don't dress for the job you have, dress for the job you want. I, and, yeah. Yeah. Have you heard that? I have heard that. I, I feel like I was in, I mean, I feel, I look back at pictures of myself in my twenties and I was like exquisitely beautiful. And I just want to smack myself up to this upside the head because I wasn't using it. It was like a complete waste. (laughs) My career would have taken off way, way faster if I had invested in the image right away. Now, it's not that it's something that I regret. I think it's a really good thing, actually, that I didn't put a lot of effort into the image until the work was solid. Mm -hmm. So I I don't think I don't feel like it was a mistake. Um. I think actually, you know, if you kind of go at it the other way, like if you you come in with a really solid image, but your work isn't quite solid yet, I think that's when a lot of people sort of, um, yeah, that can be like a much rockier road. Yeah. So I think it all happened in the time that it was supposed to happen for a reason. But if you're working in the fashion industry and you're somehow like deluding yourself into thinking how you look doesn't matter, like you need to like check it. So that's really interesting to me. And I mean, you, um, you did a lot of things over those first eight years that um, from, from the research I've done and what I've read that what I believe involved a lot of confidence and a lot of courage. And so you definitely had that. Um, and it wasn't even until later that you realized perhaps the way I'm physically dressing and presenting myself could be improved, which can then improve my career. But I want to just talk about the confidence that you've had throughout um, a lot of your career. So um, you quote in, in an article that I read, um, in 2006, I traveled to New York for the first time to meet other fashion bloggers. Shortly afterwards, I started getting emails from around the world Uh, asking me to do drawings. That was the beginning of my career, this little trickle of jobs. After that, I just never stopped. And and you've done a lot of traveling. You've shown up um, places where you don't know anybody. I, I, I listened to um, something where you talked about when you were in, in London and you, like you, like you mentioned earlier, you showed up there, you had no money, you didn't know anybody. It was really intense for a while, but you keep doing these things and putting yourself in these uncomfortable positions and you grow from that. You get contacts from that. You get networks from that. Um, you get jobs from that. And for a lot, of, a lot of people, it can be super hard to do that, to show up somewhere, whether it be to an event or to a brand new city um, and approach people. Uh, I know that's happened to me. I, I can get nervous about approaching people. Um, you even tell a story when you were in London at the Design Museum where the famous fashion critic Colin McDowell had curated a fashion illustration exhibit. And you literally just walked up to him and said, you've been in so many fashion shows. Can you tell me about illustrators drawing at fashion shows? And so this was a theme I kept seeing over and over in your career and your history. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, how do you just drop yourself into this situation and start? you know, using that cliche word networking, but talking to people and approaching people and how is that not scary or maybe it is and you still do it. Um, what, what, what are some of those experiences like for you? Um, yeah, I wasn't always that way. It was funny when I was in fashion school, the first three years, I didn't even really make friends at fashion school. Like I spent so much time in the library and like by myself 
and like in in the studio that I was living in and I was like I was just like so withdrawn like I I even selected I even selected um an internship that put me in the costume archives <laughs> which which would require because expressly because it wouldn't require me to interact with people wow. I literally spent all my time in a dark room just like cataloging clothing items by myself <laughs> which is like not maybe not like the super the most valuable like that's not what an internship is supposed to do right like right. an internship is supposed to get you out there to meet people <laughs> anyway so yeah that was the way that I was when I was in fashion school I think what brought me out of my shell probably was blogging um I just uh, I think since I was homeschooled I sort of had like this solipsistic sense of the world like I didn't think I really had a clear idea that other people were entities that had the same kinds of thoughts and fears and and whatever that I did I, I I'm like yeah it's it's odd to sort of like remember myself as a young person because there's like in, so, in some ways I'm very I was a very observant but in a lot of ways I was like incredibly oblivious and that was one of the ways um, but when I started blogging, I started recognizing like the cool thing about the early internet was like, you kind of got to see, and you still do, you get to see into people, other people's heads. And, and I found some other bloggers who were thinking about things that I also thought were interesting. And I never felt that way about the people that I went to school with or anybody that I grew up in my small town with. I was just so, I was just so surprised that, you know, it's like, oh, there's people out there that I can talk to. Um, and then I was like excited by that. So going to New York for the first time and like talking to these people who had been strangers on the internet before and like, when we really hit it off because we had already been inside each other's heads. So it was like, that was like a real, that was a real eye opener for me about the way it is to be, you know, to meet other people. And it made it seem a lot less scary um, just to know that like the people I was talking to were just curious about the same things that I was curious about. And if that's like the basis that you're building a friendship uh, or professional relationship on, it's like, it's fun. Um, yeah, I, th I stopped sort of, I think for a lot of people, it's more normal. Like I just kind of like, didn't even clock other people's consciousnesses. I think for a lot of other people, what they're really afraid of is judgment um, and being judged by other people, uh, which is like a whole other story um, in itself. I don't think that was really my issue. Anyway, so like once I started rolling on that, I just became really a lot more curious about people and open to them and what I figured out as I started my freelancing career is that, is that I just couldn't afford to sit in dark rooms by myself anymore. <laughs> I, you know, what I learned, what I noticed was a lot of my work was kind of coming through loose connections. So not necessarily people that I was close to and had known for my whole life, but acquaintances. And I was like, oh, acquaintances are like where the, where the business is coming from. Like, I just got to like get more acquaintances, <laughs> so, you know, just not necessarily people that I'm like investing like a lot of social time into, but more just like the idea of 
collecting people who know about me and who know about the thing that I'm good at so that when a gig comes up and they're like, oh, we need somebody to illustrate this fashion. Who is, oh, I remember I met this person. <laughs> like, just trying to like put that picture of me into people's heads. Um, and I think that was really good. Uh, the power of loose connections, I think, is really great. A lot of people start out like doing gigs for their friends and family, which is great, which can be great, I guess, but it can also just be an issue depending on how those people um, perceive or value you. So most of my clients when I was starting out were people that I just didn't, I didn't even know very well. And I think that was great because like it was just much easier to sort of form a professional identity and kind of like, you know, go through that process where you're learning about who the good clients are and who the bad ones are and how to deal with them and all of that. Okay. So you really like some of your first jobs, you said just kind of came through loose connections. So maybe a friend of a friend of a friend or something like that. Right. Yeah. And then from there you, you realized, okay, I just need to make more friends of friends of friends, more loose connections. And so that's, is that, am I, am I saying it correctly that that's kind of when you feel like you force yourself to break out of your shell and go to more events and just start talking to people and, and making these loose connections and maybe passing out cards or something, showing people what you're doing so that then six months, two years down the road, when they need someone to do that, they remember you, you're the person they think of. Yeah, I think it's that. And then it's just sort of like, you know, slowly and in inoculating yourself to the idea of talking to strangers, just like, like, if you're not investing a lot in any of these connections, right, like, you don't actually have a lot to lose if somebody just doesn't have time for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just like, you know, you get used to it. I think the other thing, too, is I remember, like, at certain phases when I was like, just getting started out. I remember I, while I was still in school, I had my portfolio and I literally, and this was like before I had my own computer. So it was before the internet or anything, but I remember one time taking my portfolio and literally walking up and down the streets in Toronto, knocking on anything that looked slightly fashiony and like going in and showing my portfolio to people. Did that work? Yes, it did. I got some of my first clients that way. Wow. And I sort of like, it, it also kind of like helped me like map out where, what was where in Toronto, just in sort of like a physical mental memory thing. Yeah. I don't think that's something that would have occurred to me post-internet, but I remember pre-internet and it was actually my ex who, who encouraged me to do it. He had come to Toronto from the same small town I did and wanted to be a special effects guy. And he told me that how he started out is he opened the phone book and looked <laughs> up the special effects places and literally knocked on their door and showed them his portfolio and asked them if they needed help. And he got a job sweeping a floor at one place and worked his way up. He had no, he had no um, high school diploma or anything, and he ended up getting his dream career. So I remember taking his advice to heart when I was still in school. Haven't thought about that in a long time. Oh, that's really fun. Um, so there's this whole concept that I, I've talked with a lot of people about. If you want something, you have to ask for it. So you went out and you literally did this physical cold calling, right? You're like, 
pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, asking for the work. Um, and I've seen some pictures of you in, I, I don't know where, London, New York, various um, Fashion Week events, and you have like a tote bag that has a clear cover on it. It's like a, one of the sides is like clear and you always have an illustration in there. So it's like, as you're walking around, you're almost like this. And I, I don't, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. It's like walking billboard of what you do. Yeah, uh, that was, that's exactly the idea. It's a total New York idea. <laughs> um, because yeah, I mean, so I, I constructed that bag myself with a plexi window and, uh, you know, it's designed to hold, like you can buy the large sheets of arches paper. So if I quarter those arches paper, then it fits perfectly inside the bag. And it, the paper is about 11 by 15, which is just about as large as I can sketch at a fashion show without knocking people next to me over. <laughs> so it was like, I was like, I'll design to kind of like do that. And I was also thinking of Andy Warhol, who famously used to walk up and down the streets of New York with a stack of interview magazines and like handing them out. So, so it was just like this idea is just like, well, you know, I have to like, you know, part of what I'm doing is like, I'm doing this thing that's live in the moment. So, so, you know, how do I convey that to people if they didn't actually witness it? And one of the ways is like right after the fashion show is done, I can slide the illustration into the bag and it's already, it's already there. Um, yeah, I don't know how like effective the bag is, but it was also just like super functional and useful. Like the plexiglass forms the hard surface that I sketch on. Oh, like, okay. It's, it's like, so, so that's like, that bag is like a whole bunch of ideas rolled into one. <laughs> Very multifunctional. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, that came around, I think around year eight when I was like starting to construct my visual identity, the bag did. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you did a live talk back at Apple in 2013 when you did that collaboration with 53 and their app called Paper, and that was the opportunity you got to go to a bunch of um, amazing shows. You mentioned the Oscar de la Renta show, and I know you also went to Alexander Wang, um, and you did all the live illustrations on the iPad. And you told this really interesting story, um, and I'm actually going to link to that interview in the show notes because I, I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, oh, and And just for listeners, it was a video uh, live chat at the Apple store. And it's really, really fun to watch. But you told this story about the J. Crew show, and it set up the opposite of a typical runway show where the models stood still and the audience walked around them. And you said that the models started posing when they saw you drawing. And, and you didn't really love that feeling. You didn't really love like someone posing for you to illustrate them. You um, really prefer to sketch when the models move quickly. And you quote, I quote, you said, when you're at a live show, you don't have time to think. You just have to start drawing. The faster the models move, the better the sketches are because I have less time to think about it. And so I know that for a lot of designers or a lot of people who are trying to go into the fashion industry or trying to, you know, get um, uh, improve their career, advance their career, it's really easy to get stuck in decision mode um, when you're in a position that you just, oh, I could do this, I could do this. And so instead you just don't do anything. But you're in these situations where you just have to do something. And it seems to have really um, resonated with your, your personality and your work ethic. And, and so I'm curious, 
What lessons have you learned from these live runway sketching events that have helped you make decisions about other things in your career in your career and not get stuck and instead just pull the trigger and do something. Keep moving forward at all times. Yeah. Um yeah, the the whole live sketching practice has really kind of sent me on a journey towards understanding consciousness itself. And I mean, <laughs> that sounds like pretty pretty highfalutin for such a for such a frivolous activity but um this is this is sort of the trip that I've been on um yeah it's a lot like learning a martial art or an instrument or a sport or or learning how to dance all of these kinds of things where um where you're using your body as a tool and so you have to learn to trust the body and this is a very challenging thing to do. Um, but, you know, with a lot of practice, you can, you can get there. And I think when I feel like I'm in that state of flow, you know, like I'm, I'm, simply, I'm simply like automatically processing whatever's coming through my senses onto the paper. And it's like I am dancing with the with the visual and audio stimulation um so it's um it's really about sort of bringing bringing myself into the moment um i've also had started over the past couple years uh, a meditation practice which has like helped me to sort of get myself into that zone faster and um yeah so like yeah, I, I don't, it's, it's really odd, like this sort of this one thing where like, I, you know, I'm trying to learn how to be particularly good at this one kind of thing. And then it actually like brings me to this point where I'm become very interested in just the the nature of consciousness itself. And how I can, how I can I guess use it, but more just sort of like how I can indulge in it. And, and it's, it's a process of becoming an artist and sort of trusting, trusting the body and trusting your inspiration and trusting your vision and your senses. Um, so yeah, there's no trick to it. <laughs> it's just really, um, it's really what the work is ultimately all about and when you find your own style, you start to kind of come across, you start to discover your own identity. Um, and it's a very subtle thing that, that sort of like after a while kind of becomes an, an enveloping like awareness throughout the rest of your life. Uh, so I don't think that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to me because um, I, it's something I experience and I've, I've gotten better over the years consciously, but like um, I, I, you touched on it when you said just like trusting your body and trusting yourself and trusting that you're you're doing the right thing. And whether that be where you're putting the line when you're doing the live sketching 
versus some other bigger decision that you might have a day or three days to think about in your life, in your career? And does it all go back to just like trusting your gut, trusting yourself that like this is the right thing to do and I'm just going to trust to do it instead of waffling and not doing anything? Because I think that's what happens to a lot of people. They just get Mm. so nervous about making the wrong decision. And so instead they do nothing. And I, I don't know. And maybe I'm like stretching this this analysis too far but when I read that that was or when I heard you say that um you don't have time to think about it you just have to start drawing that was the first thing I thought was like boy if we could all just be in a position where making a decision we don't have the time to think about it we just have to start doing it I think we'd all move forward a lot faster than like I said waffling over what's the right decision what's the wrong decision I guess so. Yeah. And I mean, another thing with the learning live sketching process is to commit to making a lot of mistakes. I spend hundreds of dollars on I spend hundreds of dollars on paper every season. And then I'll come up with like a portfolio of 12 illustrations. So it's not like I'm always doing the right drawing. (laughs) I'm like doing a lot of wrong drawings. (laughs) And, And, you know, like, that's part of it. I have to treat expensive paper like it's not worth a lot of paper. I can't be looking at the paper and be like, uh oh, like, you know, this each each piece of paper, you know, costs like six to eight dollars. So like when I cut it into quarters, each piece of paper costs two dollars. So every time I ruin a drawing, I'm ruining two dollars. And like I can't but I can't <laughs> think like that. I can't think like that. And if I don't buy the expensive paper, if I do do a good drawing on a crappy piece of paper, then it's not a like it's not a worth work of art that someone's going to pay for. Yeah. So it you have to like you have to first of all you have to commit to the good material. <laughs> you have to commit to putting to giving each illustration a space on the middle of the page, like giving it the chance to be a good illustration, and then committing to ruining nine out of ten sheets of paper. And, and that's the only way that you're going to get a good live sketching portfolio. So I don't, I I don't know if I have advice for people who are stuck. I mean, this is, I know that for myself, I started the live sketching process because I felt that my illustration work was a little too tight and a little too precious. And I Mm -hmm. thought if I put myself in a situation where I couldn't be precious that it would help me loosen up. Uh, And that, that instinct ended up being correct. Um, So I guess, yeah, just like put yourself in a position where you feel pressure, like just, you know, yeah, just put yourself in a situation where you're just like, okay, well, you know, it's like, I have to do this thing, you know, by the end of the day. Or like, you know, and just do something by the end of the day. <laughs> and like, and then, you know, it's like if you add that up after a while, you know, you'll 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 get somewhere with that, you know. John Steinbeck wrote The Grapes of Wrath, two thousand words a day, five days a week. He you know, some days he was happy with what he did, some days a lot of days he wasn't, he was frustrated. Um, but the thing is he showed up and he did it every day, whether he was going to, you know, write badly or, or write well or whatever, like that's how he got the grapes of wrath done. And it's a masterpiece. So like, yeah, there's, you just have to like, you just have to risk doing something terrible if you want to do something. I mean, if you're not going to do it, then maybe just forgive yourself for not being the per- kind of person who does things like that's totally fine too. 
I mean, John Steinbeck's neighbor, like, you know, just like enjoyed tinkering on his lawnmower. Like, that's fine, too. Like, you don't not everybody has to be like a great artist. And that's that's fine, too. I think it's just a lot of people are so harsh on themselves either way. They're harsh on themselves if they do the thing and they're harsh on themselves if they don't do the thing. Like people judge themselves very harshly and it's not necessary. So, I mean, you, it just sounds like you've gotten past this like fear of failure thing. You said like you invest all this money in the paper. You you can't think about, Oh, if this sketch isn't good, I just washed $2 down the drain. Um, and nine out of the 10 sketches don't come out good in your eyes. I mean, whatever that means, I, I don't quite know. Um, I'm, I'm sure I would look at them and I would think they were phenomenal. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would look at them and think that. Um, but you've just accepted that failure is part of the deal. Yeah, I think the live sketching practice helped me to do that. Yeah. And and it's a really interesting story. I hope that I can do a gallery show of the 10 years worth of work someday because it shows a lot of interesting stages in the process. Um, yeah, there's, there's like, there was like a couple of years there where I was doing live sketches that I thought were good, but they were actually terrible. And then there was like some time where I was doing sketches that I thought were terrible, but were actually good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and like, so like looking back at it from, you know, from the vantage point now, it's like quite the roller coaster of emotions versus like production. <laughs> uh, so I think that might be an interesting story to tell. I hope to be able to put that together at some point. Do you still have all your sketches or most of them? I have all. Yeah, I have almost all of them. I have sold almost. I yeah, I can count the number of sketches that I have sold on one hand. Wow. Okay, I was going to ask you that. How many do you actually sell? Yeah, I've sold a few prints and a few sketches, but it's not like I'm actively advertising them for sale. And so, like, I don't think people like. Even, like every once in a while an inventive person will be like I want that on my wall like I've had interior designers be like I want this sketch and this sketch and this sketch for my wall mm-hmm. and and then I'll send them a print some prints or whatever but I don't I don't have stacks of prints I don't have any like inventory I hate going to the post office like I'm <laughs> not I'm not interested in having that kind of business so I haven't really explored it and the result is is that I have a complete body of work in wrapped up in packages with, with like the, the city and the dates on them. And the, I, you know, for a while I was like, Oh, I sh- maybe I should sell some of these at some point. And then I was like, no, I'm going to keep them all because that's going to be my first gallery show. And then when I do the gallery show, that's the thing that's going to make the pieces valuable. Is that something that's in the works right now? If you can talk about that. I haven't started it, but it's okay. like, you know, it's definitely something I've, I've, I have some connections in London to gallerists and curators and they have, you know, encouraged me and sort of like been like, okay, well, you want to do this. Here's the massive amount of work that's involved. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, that's another project that's going to take me years. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think, I think it does make sense for me to have a show at some point, and that would be the show. Uh, please invite me when that happens. <laughs> I yeah, would love husband. to come. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm on your email list, so I'll definitely see it through that. Um, 
Okay, so you don't, you don't, you're not selling the sketches. Um, where's most of your income coming from? I know you do like commercial gigs. Uh, well, I'll just let you tell instead of answering. Where's most of your income coming from over these past eight plus these next two more fruitful years? Yeah, I um, mostly commercial illustration. Uh, when I started out, I did a lot of everything. So I even did like pattern drafting, costume design, like uh, sewing jobs. Like I started, I started out doing a lot of everything. Um, so I do a lot of illustration. It the illustration is various. So I do like technical illustration, um, like for line sheets for designers. I do instructional illustration for home sewing companies um, who sell patterns for people to sew at home Mm -hmm. because I know how to sew and I know how to draw. Like I have like a a crossover of skills that is particularly good for that kind of task. I've actually Uh, done pattern illustrations as well before for like McCall's and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's great. I actually really enjoy that kind of work, even though it's like not at all glamorous. It's like (laughs) the sort of thing you can listen to music while you do it. Yeah. And so it's, it's wonderful. And, And I've had times in my life where it's like, yeah, that's paid the rent. So it's super um, I've done some work, uh, because I have all these paper dolls, I have done some work that is like, uh, like consulting and illustration for dress up games, like dress up computer games. Interesting. Um, nothing, none of those, none of those computer games have ever taken off oddly, <laughs> but, um, certainly those have, those have ended up being a thing. Um, I have a column with the Globe and Mail, which comes out six times a year. I, so I, I do that. I write and illustrate that. So they're my most regular client. I also sometimes do reported pieces for them. I, uh, what else? I, um, I've been doing a lot of sketching at parties. So because I learned how to sketch really fast, there's been this trend over the past couple of years to have artists live sketching at parties and like making little portraits to for people is like party favors and I guess it's kind of like an antidote to like the Instagram thing yeah um but yeah people are really interested in they really like how I see them like I don't do caricatures I'm doing like ideal (laughs) idealization so I'm like drawing these people as if they are like a classic fashion illustration from you know the 40s or 50s and they really love it like they're just like people just go nuts for it I'm at these parties with all these rich people and they're like lined up like waiting to get their sketch. And it's just been very fascinating. Um, I have to have an assistant with me when I do these gigs to tell the people to stop posing. Oh, okay. I was going to go back to that from what you had said about the J crew show. Cause I'd imagine now these are just typical people. They're not models. And so they're probably standing there like really awkwardly posing for you to sketch them in what 30 seconds. How long do you take? No, it does not take 30 seconds. It takes, it takes like between three and five minutes. Oh, okay. It's a lot more. Yeah. Oh, bless. Yeah. If only I could do something in 30 seconds, <laughs> that would be amazing. Wow. Um, yeah. So it takes about five minutes to do a sketch and I'll have my assistant there and the assistant is just there to chat with the people so that they relax and forget that they're being drawn. Okay. Um, and the thing is, is because I don't exactly do likenesses. Like I don't draw faces in a lot of detail, for example. Mm-hmm. So people might not necessarily recognize themselves as a likeness, but what I've noticed is I'm really good at getting people's gestures and it's sort of channeling channeling their vibe and often people will recognize themselves in the drawing just from the way that they're standing or the way they're holding their arms or something wow so the only way to do that 
is if you are drawing somebody who is like moving and performing their natural gestures. And so that, that is, that is the thing, the practice that I've been most interested in. I'm less interested in how people present themselves when they feel like they're being seen and more interested in how people actually are. So doing this practice where I've been sketching at these parties has been really instructive for me in, as an artist, more so even than drawing fashion shows, because drawing fashion shows, you're kind of drawing by rote. You're drawing like a model who's walking a certain way, and the models are all taught to walk a certain way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there's some models, supermodels will be able to put forth like sort of a very strong identity. Like they actually project an image that makes them e- very easy to draw. I've only gotten to draw, draw a couple supermodels. One of them was um, Yasmin Warzum. And when I draw Yasmin Warzum, it like just came out automatically. It was just like, I, I was like, it just happened. I was like, how did I do this amazing illustration? <laughs> and it's because that's what makes her a supermodel is she is just, she, her, her magic is being able to transmit the image in every single move she makes. So yeah, and it's like, most people don't know how to do that consciously. So they'll tend to like freeze up or like, you know, those sort of like, you, you see it kind of like in the selfie pose where like people sort of like consciously like adjust themselves for the camera. And what I'm trying to do is the opposite of that. I'm trying to capture people when they are not consciously adjusting themselves so they can see themselves as they are. The weird thing about that is like, I've noticed some things like, first of all, people with low sense of self-esteem are extremely difficult to draw because they don't have, they don't have a tenable self-image and it's very difficult for them to see themselves in a drawing. Uh, the other thing that I've noticed is that narcissists are incredibly easy to draw <laughs> and it's because they are spend all of their time projecting an image. So you know, it's like the, the drawing a narcissist is like drawing like a brand name logo or something like you just, you know, it's just like something instantly recognizable because like, that's what they do. The best people to draw. And I have discovered this is almost like without exception when I am having a great time drawing somebody, they are almost always an artist in some way. And I feel like because it part of the work of being an artist is getting to know who you are and the pleasure of being who you are rather than any sort of pretense. Um, Those people, it doesn't matter if they're conventionally attractive or even if they're well-dressed or not, like drawing them is just like a, a sincere pleasure. And, and I think that's when you're doing your art correctly, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. And so have you discovered a lot of these um, insights and nuances of, of drawing various people through some of these party gigs that you're doing? Is this like a, a little bit of a newer development in your understanding of people and, and how that translates through your hand onto the paper? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's it's been happening concurrently with a number of other things that I'm studying, but yeah, the, the whole party sketching thing, it was the first time that ever something I was doing had become trendy. 
And so like, there was like a period of time where I was like stacking up like multiples of these gigs a month or like, I would sketch for like one wealthy woman in her, in her Rosedale mansion. And all of a sudden, like all of her friends would have to have me at their parties too. So I like literally do a circuit around the block, <laughs> like, for, like all these parties. I was like, and it was just wild. Like I, that was like, that was definitely like when it first became really hot and I was like, this can't possibly continue to go on, <laughs> but it's still continuing right now. I just did, I did my first live sketching gig in Paris at like in this fancy ballroom with like all these people who are like worked in the perfume industry, you know, people who've grown up in the lap of luxury and who are experts in what luxury is. And they were just dying for these little sketches that I was doing. I was so surprised they were just loving them. It was it was wild. You have like the best party trick on the block. I yeah, I mean I I don't know if I can say that. I've definitely in the course <laughs> of doing this work I've met a lot of party entertainers and musicians and people who do this type of work and it's like you you know you learn to appreciate that this is a whole you know this is a whole economy. Yeah. The, the just the the and it's part the, the the thing about pleasure kind of you come back to that as well because it's like we're there to help these people have a good time and relax. So part of the job is just going there and being relaxed and having a good time. So you're you know you're putting across this vibe, you know that's what that's what they're paying you for. Um, so it's. Uh, yeah, I can't complain when, you know, you realize, like, all of a sudden you're just like, wait, my work is to have fun. <laughs> like, oh, that's the job now. Okay, cool. <laughs> so you, um, you've you talked about this uh, sex and cash theory. This is the first time I ever heard about it, but it was really fun. And so I want you to talk a little bit about that theory. And it's not – I don't believe it's yours. It's it, you, There's an old blog post that you pulled it from. Um but talk a little bit about that theory. And then I'm really curious to know these party gigs, which does it, does that fall into the sex category or the cash category? Mm, I would put it more in the cash category. Okay. But I mean, I definitely enjoy them. Um, yeah. So Hugh McLeod was a blogger back in the early days. Like I think he started in 2003 or 2004 and he had a blog called gaping void and basically the blog was something that he started when, you know, he worked at an advertising agency and then he got laid off and he was out of work. So he had time on his hands. So he started a blog and his thing was drawing like little cartoons on the backs of business cards, which was something that he did when he was bored at the bar, but then it turned into his thing. So Hugh McLeod is definitely, as you can probably tell from how I ended up like my blog father. Um, <laughs> it, there was, it's really interesting because there was like, there was a few early blogs and most of these were by, you know, geeky men in their twenties or thirties. And when we came in as young women doing fashion blogs, um, there wasn't really like in 2005, there wasn't really like a lot of blogs already about fashion. So you were checking out what the blogs were that already existed. And most of them were by these guys who were like, you know, techie guys or in marketing or whatever. And it's interesting, I noticed with like a lot of these early bloggers, like you can kind of tell who their blog father is. You know, there's like one blogger, oh, what was his name? Steve something. 
Yeah, but he was totally like a sort of kind of creepy, like like Dale Carnegie, like mystic grifter kind of blogger character. And there was a whole set of fashion bloggers who were like, who were like totally obsessed with that guy. <laughs> and they all ended up creating like these really like, like super image heavy, like, um, like a self-helpy kind of like love yourself sort of, <laughs> you know, classic America self-help like grifter stuff. And that they all came from that particular blog father. Um, I definitely came from Hugh McLeod who was, who was like, you know, he's, he's an artist. He's an, he's an illustrator and an artist. And he was somebody who was combining words with images and was really like, that was his, his blog gaping boy was what I modeled my early blogging after. Um, Anyway, so, yeah, that's where the sex and cash theory came from. So full credit to Hugh for that. Um, the idea is basically that you're going to have some jobs that are sexy, that are, like, glamorous, uh, but probably those jobs are not going to pay a lot, and you're going to have other jobs which are not, like, cool, but they will pay very well. And there's always going to be like a little bit of um, dissonance between the two. But the idea is like, as you get further along in your career, those things go closer together. So you might start out your career, if you want to be an actor, you want to be an actor, but you're also a waiter, right? So like, then your, your, your sexy job and your cash making job are really far apart. But then even if you become a successful actor, you know, you're still going to like, you know, you're going to work on like a really like influential indie film with like with a, you know, a, a, a critically acclaimed director, which won't pay you very much. And then you'll have to do like some stupid superhero money to make your millions of dollars to pay for <laughs> your house or whatever. So like even when you're successful, you're not going to transcend that division. So what have been some of your sexy jobs over the years? Well, I mean, I think definitely the the live runway sketching is like the sexy aspect of what I do. And as I've just revealed to you, like I've virtually made no money from that at all, like directly. So you never made, made any money off of like literally like physically selling the sketches, but you also just happened to get your foot in the door at the show. Like no one ever paid you to show up there. You were literally doing it on your own at your own expense. Yeah, sometimes I would have a client that would offset the expense, but I can count the number of seasons. Like, I think I've only had, like, one season where I even broke even. Wow, okay. Like, so, like, all of that live sketching work was just completely on my own dime, which is why, one of the reasons why when I quit it, like, that was, like, a really dramatic thing for me. I was just like, I'm not paying for this anymore. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> That's what it's like. It's like, it's like project over. You know, it's been swell 10 years, but the swelling's gone down. So I'm out of here. So um, it's, it's April of 2017 and you just quit like last month. Yeah. Last February. season was my last season. Okay. Yeah. So that, you know, that's why it felt so great to me. It's not like I'm quitting a job. It's like, I'm quitting, I'm quitting this passion project, which I have completed. I've, I've learned what I've needed to learn you know, I, I have had a whole series of experiences, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to keep going back to the well, I've received the information. 
But surely do you think that some of your other successes stemmed from that experience? So while you didn't monetize it directly, other stuff built off of that and branched off of you continually showing up, putting yourself out there, building your portfolio, being able to present yourself to clients with these sketches and show them what you were doing. Oh think? yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just not, it's just not a direct thing. It's like an indirect thing. Yeah. Um, so, okay. To, uh, to jump to something a little bit more, um, I, I don't even know what the word is, but, um, we're on the topic of money and getting paid. And, um, you said something, I read something where you said, always ask for money, always ask for more money than you think you're going to get, or that you think they're willing to pay. And so I'd love to know, like, where where do you even start with pricing and figuring out what something's worth or how much you should charge, whether that be like a custom illustration and depending on how the client's going to use it, does that change your pricing structure um, or, you know, showing up to these one of these parties? And you don't have to share any exact numbers, but I'm just curious, like, how you approach this whole pricing structure and strategy. Yeah. Um, like for the live sketching at parties, like initially, like I was like, wait, how much do this, how much does it cost to get a photo booth for a party? <laughs> like how much does it cost to get a robot to do my job? And then I was like, okay, well, you know, it's gotta like, I've got to be in that ballpark and it's surprisingly expensive to buy a robot. So it's like, you know, it's like, I should at least, I should at least be getting what the robot's getting. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's how I figured out the live sketching work um yeah I mean I have like an idea of of what I want to what I think I'm worth an hour and you know that started to be that started as a pretty low number like I think I started at $50 an hour and I would just like try to like you know get enough information out of the client that I can estimate how long I think it's going to take and then and then I'm going to like you know take so it's like $50 and I think it's going to take me six hours. So it's going to be $300 or something like that. But I don't tell the client that's what my hourly rate is. I don't, that's none of their business. So I don't tell the client that. And instead I just like give them the flat rate for the project. Okay. You know, if it took a lot of back and forth with the client and it seems like they're not that great at communicating, then I'm like, I, I pad that because like, I know it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to spend like half the time of this project, just waiting for this person to email me back, <laughs> like this is not going to like, you know, I'm mean, they're, they're going to have to pay more for that. So, so there's all of that, but then it's just, and then it's just like, once you have a place where you're starting from and you're, you're, you're asking for like a reasonable amount of money to start, it's like each time you get a project, you just try to push it up a little higher. You're just like, okay, well now my hourly rate is 60. Now my hourly rate is a hundred. Now my hourly rate is 200. Now my hourly rate is 300. <laughs> like you just keep going up and what you want to be in a sweet spot is like, you want the client to have a little bit of an objection, but not a lot of objection. Uh, and you also want to weed out clients who just simply do not, you know, agree with you about your value. Mm-hmm. So, you you know, you always want to like just the sweet spot is like a couple hundred dollars above what the client is willing to pay, because then they're going to be like, oh, I was thought I was thought it was going to be like a a thousand dollar project, but she's asking for twelve hundred, but yeah, it's just an extra. So whatever. So they're like, yeah, okay, fine. So you just want to get to that point where there's like just a little bit of resistance because then, you know, you're not leaving any money on the table. And you also know that's what the client thinks you're worth. So 
that is your your you know your value will vary wildly depending on the client and the job and everything. Like there's no standard in this type of work. It's the wild west out there. Um, you know, it's like you are worth whatever you can get away with. So how are you going to arrive at that number? You always have to just push it a little higher until you get to that point where you start getting people saying no and having resistance. And when you get to the resistance, then you know that you're around the ballpark of what people consider your worth to be. So you actually, instead of the paradox there is like, it's the opposite of wanting somebody to say yes. You want somebody to say no. <laughs> and then you can be like, oh, you know, what's your objection? And they'll be like, oh, well, you know, it's just, you know, our budget, we weren't expecting that to be a $1,000 job, you know. And I was like, you know, at that point you can be like, oh, like what were you hoping for? And they'll be like, oh, we were hoping it would be more like 700 And then you can be like, it's your call at that point. You're like, would I do the job for 700 And if you're sort of like, yeah, I got the time, why not? You can say yes. And then, you know, it's fine, but you know, you're not leaving money on the table. So that's the worst thing is like, you know, like if you do a quote for a client and you're like, okay, the job is going to be a thousand dollars. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. And then you're like, oh no, oh no. How much would you have paid? Like, you know, I just like, you know, you don't, because then you, the big question mark is like, well, how much would have you have paid? Yeah. You know, like you for the for the extra, you know, you know, for the extra five minutes of adding like another five hundred dollars to that invoice, you could have gotten a five hundred dollar raise. Like it was like it's just it's I kind of yeah, for some reason, like I have been blessed, like I don't have a particular fear of like everybody has their things that they're afraid of. Like I'm terrified of skiing and swimming and driving. Like these things like send me into panic attack modes. But for a lot of people, it's like economic insecurity gives them the willies or like, um, or, you know, discussing money gives them the willies or something like I am. I have not had that issue, particularly with the money thing is like, I've been learned to enjoy it. I'm agent free. Uh, so I've been talking about money my whole career. I, kind of approach it in sort of a, a, a playful way I've just figured out to be like okay well like yeah this is a game to see how much money I can get for this project and, and yeah and then you know I just start playing the game right away so like you know when the client contacts me right away I'm like okay let's talk about rates like just like first thing because like if they're first of all if they're not like if they're not interested in talking with you about rates they're not even a client so you want to get that out of the way so they're not wasting your time. And yeah, I just, that's the way that I feel about the money thing. Have you ever thought about the concept that like people, there's the perceived value of something based on how much you pay for it. So if you were, let's say like a new illustrator, and, and I realize at some point you can only charge so much when you're first breaking into the field. And then at some point there's a cap. But if you continually are undercharging yourself and maybe you have, I don't know what the appropriate amount of experience would be, but a couple years of experience and you really should be charging a thousand for this job and you come in at 300, the client can start to think, oh, well, how good is this really going to be if she's only charging 300, right? Like how good could she really be? And so this whole perceived value of like the price changes their perception of what they feel like they're going to get and what it's worth. Have you ever thought about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I've noticed that 
yeah, I mean, like, the, where you value yourself in one sphere will reflect on another. So, you know, if you're not confident enough to ask for what you're worth, how are you going to be confident enough to do a good, to do good work? Okay, so you mentioned a minute ago you have these fears of um, skiing and swimming and driving. Um, and I want to just kind of veer towards where you are right now in your career um, currently. So you just recently quote-unquote quit doing these live illustration gigs where you're self-funding these trips to go to all the fashion weeks and and most of the time it's an expense you're, you're not even breaking even um you're you are going to continue fashion illustration um and and you talk about what you're done with is knocking on fashion's door if fashion wants you it needs to come get you um and you're transitioning into doing a lot of writing. This is something you've done. You have your column at the, what is it called? The Daily Globe? The Globe and Mail. Globe and Mail, excuse me. Um, so you have your column and you, you've you done a lot of writing. You obviously have your blog. Um, and you have talked about that you have a book inside you um, that it's like written inside your head. But it's the, you have this fear of um, producing it. So I, I'm just trying to, you know, you talked about these fears of, of certain things um, that are like physical activities. And and throughout your career, it doesn't sound like you've had a lot of fears. I mean, you've just gone out there, you've done it, you've shown up, um, you've talked to people, you've put yourself in really uncomfortable situations, and you've just done it. And now you have this fear of producing this book. I, I hope I'm reading into that right from what I, I read of your blog post um, can you talk a little bit about that and like what's kind of next on your path and, and how you plan to develop the next segment of your career? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the thing about fashion illustration is it was quite easy for me to turn it into a business, much easier than it has been for me to do my writing, to do freelance writing. And I think it's because my ego is way more invested in my writing than it is in my illustrations. Mm. So it's really been quite easy for me. Like if I have a client, you know, I send them an illustration and they're like, nah, I don't like that. I'll be like, okay, I'll change it. Fine. You're paying. <laughs> but with writing, when my editor comes to me and they're like, uh, we're going to change this part and this part. And I'm like, no, how dare you? These are my precious ideas. Mm. Like I, I just like, I, I, I've had a hard time sort of, turning the writing into something that I do professionally. The other thing is what terrifies me is not writing the book. What terrifies me is that writing a book at the scale that I'm writing now, and I've started writing it, is that it is going to require years of commitment. And it's not, it, there's absolutely no certainty of any payoff at all. Mm -hmm. So unlike the fashion illustration career where it's like, I do a project, I get paid. I do a project, I get paid. Sometimes it takes me months to get paid, but I do get paid. And it's project to project to project. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's and it's, there's a lot of variety and like, you know, it's all of these things. And it's sort of gotten, it's gotten to a point where it's like easy for me now. And, you know, to just, completely change gears and to start writing this novel, this novel, which I've drafted multiple times in my life, started and dropped because the whole thing just kind of like boggles me. Like it just boggles me that I would try to do something like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, who do I think I am? Truman Capote. <laughs> and like, and like, I sort of came to this realization was like, yeah, that's exactly who I think I am. 
I was born on the same day as Truman Capote. Like my, hmm. you know, my image as a fashion illustrator was based on his character, Holly Golightly. Like I, I, you know, and I've, I'm, I've, I've, I've just gotten to this place where it's like, well, if I want to be a writer, I want to be a writer at that level. I want to be a writer at the Steinbeck, Capote, Atwood level. That's what I really wanted to do. If you'd asked me when I was a little girl what I wanted to do, I would have told you I want to be a novelist. And and I never started doing that thing because like it just requires like it requires the sense of um confidence in your own artistry that you would only be able to develop after having 10 years of experience in something else. <laughs> Just like, okay, well, who would have thought that I could have become a fashion illustrator in the 21st century of all times in all places from who, like, you know, being a little girl born in the Canadian woods, like who would have expected that was possible? And then it's sort of like, well, if that was possible, maybe it's possible that I could do the thing that I really wanted to do this whole time as well. I love that that amazing 10-year career, which is still continuing um, as a fashion illustrator, has given you the courage and the inspiration to do this other like gargantuan task. But you've had this realization of like, oh, okay, I could do this. I can do this other thing. It's almost like this concept of like each win that you have allows you to tackle something that much harder and then have a little bit of a bigger win and a little bit of a bit of a bigger win and it keeps building on itself. Obviously there's a lot of there's millions of failures trickled in there too. Um <laughs> as any of us who have gone forward with our own endeavors know. Um so you now have the courage to do that and uh Yeah, and I've been I've been fortunate. Like I I I have already proven to myself that I can make one book. So I know I can make a book. Yeah. Like it is something that I can do. You know, that time I had a publisher who, you know, asked me to do the thing and, you know, I had like an external motivator. Now it's just like, okay, I just have to do the same thing, but without a publisher or <laughs> an external motivator, I have to do it with an internal motivator. The other thing is like, I'm 34 years old. I'm at the time in my life where a lot of people my age are doing things like having children or have, buying houses, doing this sort of thing. Also things that take like a lot of faith that, you know, you can spend years and years working towards this one particular thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you invest a lot of time and energy in something that you care a lot about without having like any sort of certainty of payoff at the end of it. And it's like, you know, it's like, the, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have any assets. I don't have my own family. Like these are not things that have happened for me in my life, but I feel like this, this equivalent is like, I have like, I have this real sense that I have a cultural contribution w that is inside of me. Like I, I'm like, I'm pregnant with a book. So, so yeah, I mean, what else would I do with my thirties? Like this is, I, I clearly, I was, it's just, it's time for me to do it. Yeah. Are you trying to pursue other freelance writing opportunities or you're staying focused on, um, freelance illustration and, and that type of work. And then the writing is really more your own baby, literally, as you just said, you're pregnant with it. Yeah, I think, uh, I would, I would continue with the freelance illustration. I think the advantage of 
having that as my, as my cat is like the cash driving aspect of my career is that it just uses a completely different set of muscles than my writing muscles. <laughs> I know a lot of my friends who are freelance writers and for them, you know, it's, you know, it's writing is very mentally intensive and it's, it's, you know, it's heart intensive as well. And even when you are writing for a client where you might have some separation from that, it's like the to, to, it's much more difficult to separate yourself from it than it is for other types of tasks. So, so it can be quite exhausting for my writing friends to be like doing copywriting or whatever they're doing to like get the money through. And then, and then they have to like go to their creative project, which uses all of the same muscles. It's, it, it's, it's, an, it's exhausting for them. So I feel very fortunate that I have, that I have this, this other, this other like freelance career, which, which allows me to do something different. It means that when I am coming to the writing part of my day, like I'm coming at it fresh. I'm not, I haven't already been looking at tiny words on, on a screen or a paper right. all day. Those muscles aren't atrophied and exhausted. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm very fortunate in that regard. And also it's just like I'm so used to having like a lot of variety in my life and, you know, different projects, different clients, different things to do. Like it's just, and, you know, I, I like that. Yeah. I like having that. Yeah. Um, Danielle, this has been so much fun and so amazing and insightful to hear your stories and all the stuff you've gone through and, and have planned for the future. Um, I'll end with the one question that I ask everybody at the end and, um, some people get, need a minute to think about it. So take your time. But, um, what is one question you always wish people would ask you about working in fashion, but never actually do? Yeah. Oh, I guess I don't have like, I don't have an answer on but the, I can't think of a question on the top, the top of my head. So I guess I'll take a minute. Um, so the explanation I always give, and I don't want to sway your answer one way or the other, but, um, for me it's, you know, people have this perception of working in fashion, working in the fashion industry as like a broader stroke as being really, really glamorous, right? We just like frolic and fabric all day and running around town in, in our stilettos and our lattes. And, um, you know, that's not necessarily the reality of it. There's a lot of, um, you know, for me being a designer, there's a lot of technical and engineering and development that goes into it. And I'm actually really fascinated by that process of it, um, the mechanics right. behind product. And nobody ever talks about that or really wants to talk about that. They're really just more interested in, in the glamorous portion. So I don't know if that inspires you, obviously. Oh, so what you're really asking about is misconceptions. Not necessarily misconception. Uh, I, you could phrase Although I do have a, I do have a pet misconception okay. that, I, that I like to dispel. Let's see like that. a lot of people think that, you know, fashion people are not smart. Like there's this real sort of perception. And I think there's... A sort of reason for that, like when you see a lot of interviews with fashion people, they're not necessarily the most articulate people. <laughs> um, however, I think it's a complete mistake to mistake that inarticulateness for, for in you know, a lack of intelligence. 
a lot of people in the fashion industry are visually intelligent people. And they have become visually intelligent people often because, you know, for it, it sort of makes up for the fact that they are not necessarily people who think in words or, you know, people who are capable of like a certain type of, of analytical um, reasoning. What they're really good at is they, they communicate in images. And sometimes I've noticed this with a lot of the fashion people who especially tend to have like very elaborate personal style is that what they're saying with the style is like, please look at me, please look at me, but do not talk to me. <laughs> do not talk to me. I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable in that mode. I'm not comfortable speaking in that mode. And these people are visual. There's a lot of people in fashion who are visual geniuses who are able to do amazing things with, with image and with visual ideas that you just, you can't even, you can't even necessarily express in words because it's just not the same thing. And it's a total disservice to assume that these people are, you know, slow because they are, they are like running circles around us in this other sphere. And so I think that's something that's really valuable. I'm one of the, I think in fashion, there's some people that I think of being as bilingual who are good at both expressing themselves in, in images and words. And, and I guess to some extent I'm bilingual. I actually feel like I'm stronger in words than I am in images. Um, and a lot of people are, who are really good at words, you know, you think of people like Karl Lagerfeld or Coco Chanel, who are like experts with the sound bite, you know, because they were able to like create those sound bites, they're able to like connect the image and the words. And that's like a very powerful thing. Um, you will get very, very far if you can, if you can connect images and words. Um, but yeah, I mean, visual intelligence is intelligence. I just, I, I find it to be extremely frustrating when people overlook that. Do you feel like people have had that with you that you, like you meet them and you, and just because you draw these amazing illustrations, they automatically assume that you're not bright or. Uh, I don't think I've noticed that for myself necessarily mm. because I, I am somebody who can communicate in words pretty, pretty adroitly. Yeah. Uh, so this isn't something that I'm not defending myself here. I'm just defending a lot of the people in fashion who, you know, just, yeah, it can be difficult to connect with them, but if you appreciate them for what they're, what they're delivering in the communication mode where they feel most comfortable, it's just so inspiring and impressive and, you know, just you know, let, let their, let their visual presentation speak for itself. You know, we don't need to ask anything more of these, these swans. I love that you, you, you do have a, a phenomenal way with words. Um, it comes out in your writing as well as your speaking. Um, and I'm sure you're going to go very far in your writing career, um, in tandem with your illustration career. Um, so thank you so much, Danielle. I'd love to know, um, can you ever, can you let everybody know where can people find you? Uh, sure. And thank you so much for having me, Heidi. Yes. Of um, course. yeah, you can visit me on the internet, uh, at my blog is called final fashion and that's still like the most Googleable thing. So yeah, if you look for final fashion, 
you will find me. Um, and that's it. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Really great chatting with you, Danielle. You too, Heidi. Take care. Thank you for listening to episode five of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash five. And since you made it this far, you must have liked the episode. If you could take 60 seconds to leave a review on iTunes, it helps the show a lot and makes the podcast easier for other people to discover. It's super easy to do and I'd really appreciate it. Visit sfdnetwork.com slash review to leave your rating and thanks for your support and help. Thank you.